I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with journalist and author Catherine Stewart. We discuss her latest book titled The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And we talk about the history of how the religious right became entangled in politics and how it's actually not a social movement at all, but a political movement, one that's anti-democratic and favors authoritarianism. And if you've ever wondered about the contradictory beliefs held by the religious right, like how they can say that they are for family values or that they're anti-violence and then turn around and support someone like Donald Trump. Well, Catherine Stewart explains all of that. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Catherine Stewart. Catherine Stewart, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So your book analyzes the current and historical ties between Christian nationalism or the Christian nationalist movement, I should say, and politics, specifically conservative politics. But I want to start with how you define the Christian nationalist movement, because you say that it's it's often misunderstood, right? And that people, you know, that it's not religious. People think that it's a religious creed, but it's more of a political ideology. So how do you define it? Oh, Christian nationalism involves the claim that the foundation of legitimate government in the United States is bound up with a reactionary understanding of a particular religion. So even though it uses religious rhetoric, of course, and makes use of religion, it's really an anti-democratic political ideology, as well as a device for mobilizing people and concentrating political power by getting people to vote a certain way. America's Christian nationalism shares features with forms of religious nationalism around the world, where leaders bind themselves to religious conservatives to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power. When you look at what's happening in countries like Russia or Hungary or Turkey and Iran, to name just a few, when leaders there bind themselves tightly to hyper-conservative religious leaders in those countries in order to consolidate power. We rightly see this as a form of religious nationalism, and that's what we're seeing, I think, with Trump and his alliances with hyper-conservative religious figures today. And, um, you know, religious nationalist movements of this sort always appeal to kind of mythical history, um, the idea that there's a true believer, a type of true believer, and that they once reigned. So they invent this kind of mythical history where America's founders were all essentially Bible thumpers intent on establishing a so-called Christian nation. Now, I use a lot of different terms throughout my book. I use terms like uh, Christian right, religious right, uh, some uh, dominionist where appropriate. There are other terms that people like to use, uh, fundamentalist. Some people use even the term, I think it's a uh, Christian Americanism. There are a couple of academics who like those, uh, those, uh, that term in particular. And I, I use those terms except for the latter where appropriate. I mean, people should use the terms that they're comfortable with. But I often like to refer to the whole as a Christian nationalism, number one, because it makes clear its similarities with other forms of uh, religious nationalism around the world. And number two, because it is making use of religion in, in its quest for political power. Yeah, it's making use of religion, but it's not a religious ideology. It's not a single religion, for sure. I mean, the you know, I think some of the members of the movement, leaders of the movement, might see as religion, you and I can see as partisan agitation. You know, when they say, oh, you have to vote your biblical values, and that's anti-abortion, we can see that this is a kind of effort to get people to vote a certain way, to elect the hyper-conservative political candidates that the movement favors. But they might not say, well, what we're doing politics, what they'll say is we're just, you know, 
talking about a biblical worldview and doing it from a religious perspective. Right. You know, and I'm going to ask you a question that may have not been in your book, that when you hear them describe, you know, democratic or liberal policy ideas, they often use the word value, like a democratic value or liberal value versus, you know, a difference in policy ideas. Right. Right. So, you know, something that's science based like climate change (laughs) becomes about values. Right. And not about what the data says or the science says. But what does God believe? Am I off there or is that intentional? A lot of people look at the movement and they interpret it through a culture war lens. They look at it around issues like, as you you mentioned, same-sex marriage or abortion or even climate change. They sort of cast certain types of environmental regulations as against the biblical model or as unbiblical. But, you know, it's a mistake to think that the culture war is driving the politics, that this is just a grassroots expression of social discontent. Religious nationalism is certainly making use of religion, but it's not just trying to achieve religious, social, or cultural aims. It's also trying to achieve political power. And it's an anti-democratic movement because it says that the foundation of legitimate government in the United States is a strict interpretation of a a particular religion. So, So another thing that you assert is that, you know, people often conflate, and this is one of the things that they misunderstand about the movement, is they conflate the followers of the movement with the people who craft its direction, right? The people who generate the ideas. And that's something that I'm certainly guilty of, right? So so if they're not the same people, who are they? Who's actually driving the ideas? Well, I think uh, the leaders of the movement are driving the ideas. I think, you know, it's hard to generalize about a very wide range of people with very different interests, backgrounds, and ideas. But, you know, one thing that you said is it really is very helpful to distinguish between the leaders and the followers. The followers are going to believe they're fighting for things like a ban on abortion or defense of the traditional family. And uh, many of them do not explicitly support anything like a theocracy and would be quite unhappy to learn all of the details about what their leaders are proposing. Um, Much of this group votes identity and not just policy. So when they vote for candidates who promise to end abortion or reunite church and state, or when they insist that America is a Christian nation, they're not actually aiming for major fundamental changes in the way the American government is organized. What they're doing is making a statement about who they are and what they value in themselves. But for the leaders of the movement, which include the heads of right-wing policy groups, networking groups, media and legislative initiatives, legal and data organizations and the like, their vision involves a lot more power for themselves and for their networks and the political leaders that they support. So, I mean, they want three things. They want people who belong to sort of approved versions of their religion or their political allies to be in charge of all areas of government and society. They, they want to be able to look to government uh, for a constant flow of taxpayer dollars and for policies that privilege their religion. And they also want a legal code that privileges people with the so-called correct beliefs and allow them to discriminate against other people of whom they, uh, they you know, if their identities or so-called lifestyles, they disapprove. So overall, I guess maybe I'm being too overly simplistic, but they, they want to consolidate political power. But how does, let's say, you know, being anti-abortion, right, or anti-climate science, or even like, you know, the anti-LGBTQ movement, like how does that consolidate political power? Like what's in it for them? That's how they get people's votes. I mean, let's start with abortion. So I do a lot of first-person reporting in my book. I went to these sort of pastor gatherings that are a key initiative in uh, the movement turning out 
the rank and file to vote for the political candidates they favor. They know very well that if you can get people to vote on a single issue, you can control their vote. So when leaders of the movement are talking to the rank and file, or when they're talking to religious leaders, like these sort of conservative-leaning pastors, about the issues they should communicate to their congregations to turn out the vote, it's all abortion all the time. Abortion is like they say, you know, Republicans are the party of life. So I went to these pastor gatherings, like I went to uh, several of them. I went to a gathering of an organization called Watchmen on the Wall. It's an initiative of one of the right-wing, leading right-wing policy groups called the Family Research Council. They have, they claim to have over 27,000 pastor members, and they get them networked and, and do these events with them in advance of elections in swing states to get all of these pastors on the program, they do a presentation where speaker after speaker gets up there and delivers messages to persuade them to turn out their congregations to vote for their so-called biblical values. And then they give them these incredibly sophisticated tools to do that. So I found myself in rural North Carolina with dozens of conservative-leaning pastors from the area. And they were basically giving them the message that, you know, we're in you know, war with the powers of darkness, you know, the rulers of the darkness, they sort of quoting from the book of Ephesians, it left no question in the minds of the listeners that the so-called rulers of the darkness are to be found on the democratic side of the aisle. And they're basically saying, you know, your congregations need to vote as pastors, you need to just don't suggest to them to vote, you need to tell them that they need to vote, and they need to vote their biblical values. And then there was all of this talk about ending abortion. You know, so it was people coming away from that event couldn't help but conclude that they were being told that they need to turn out their congregations to vote for the hyper conservative candidates that want to end abortion. Well, one of the things that people who vote for those candidates end up also doing is voting for certain candidates who support far right economic policy. For years, the Christian nationalist movement has allied itself with the like libertarian, you know, far right wing economic policy that has succeeded in promoting tax policies that benefit the rich and hollowed out the social safety net. So it's a much broader policy uh, range of policies that they end up voting for. But if you can get people to just focus on those few culture war issues like abortion and gay marriage and things like that, you can really get their vote. Wow. You know, so uh, that's really interesting. So the wording they use is something like, you know, voting for darkness. What was the phrase that they used? Oh, rulers of the darkness. They're basically, um, it was a quote, there was a quote from a book, the book of Ephesians that was used to sort of at the very beginning of this event to kind of cast this as um, a battle between absolute good and absolute evil. And that's what they do. I mean, it was um, the, the Democratic Party was, you know, in a way metaphorically cast as satanic. Wow. Wow, because <laughs> this coalition, this this coalition that's been cobbled together, you have the same people who are trying to keep the rulers of the darkness out of power, but the same coalition also ends up voting for gun rights and like, you know, lack of gun control, which undoubtedly leads to, to death and, you know, murder and suicide and domestic violence and, you know, climate change, of course, ends lives, you know, essentially. That's just a dissonance that I don't think a lot of people think about. That's absolutely true. And I think um, the economic piece of it is really underestimated. They cast the idea of public assistance to the poor or, you know, policies that promote the rights of the workforce as unbiblical or against the biblical model. Um, there's a fellow at the Family Research Council, which I 
just mentioned earlier, who actually called government programs like food stamps or housing assistance as against the biblical model. They say it's against God's established order. So, um, you know, when, when you're voting for these sort of right-wing or conservative culture war issues, you're also bringing in this sort of this right-wing economic policy. I think it was one of the movement leaders, David Barton, who said something like, if I want to know who's going to protect my money, I'm sort of, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he said something along the line of, if I want to know who's going to protect my money, I'm going to vote for the anti-abortion political candidate, meaning who's going to protect, you know, the accumulation of uh, plutocratic wealth or, or, or not, you know, people who aren't going to promote uh, sort of uh, progressive income taxes and things like that. Earlier, you talked about their vision, right? And it's hard for me to imagine a cohesive vision considering everything that we've just talked about, right? So what is their vision for the country? You know, what would it look like if they were completely successful? And also, just one other thing, you said that you don't think that their most extreme vision will be successful. And, you know, why do you think that? Uh, I think I'm going to take on the last one first. I think in a country as irreducibly pluralistic as ours, they're never going to be able to unify the entire country around their idea. Look, you know, the fundamental question is, whether one accepts that we live in a pluralistic society where people have different beliefs and perspectives or not. I mean, if everyone shared the same perspective, after all, wouldn't really need to worry too much about the distinction between religion and politics. But in our society, which is irreducibly pluralistic, there can be no expectation that people are going to agree on these religious questions. So I think, you know, there are those that embrace pluralism and diversity and who attempt to advance their values in the public sphere by appealing to non or extra religious values that the public at large may hold in common, such as the idea of, you know, being kind to one another or taking care of people who are undefended or or need help. Uh, and then there are those that kind of seek to use the power of the state to impose their views on everyone else and sort of take charge of the public resources for themselves. So I think of the latter as advocates for the development of a political religion, which is this, this uh, movement. It's one that makes use of theological frameworks in order to justify political power over other people and groups. And that's their vision. Well, you know, when I when I was reading your book, the thing that kept coming to mind or the word that kept coming to mind is um, presumptuous. Right. Because there are lots of religions in the U.S. I mean, you know, arguably, you know, I mean, there's I think there's like 60 something denominations, you know, although Christianity is, you know, has the largest percentage. But it's incredibly diverse, incredibly diverse Christianity. I have a friend who's involved in a book called The Handbook of Christian Denominations. They found like over a thousand different distinctions. Now, they might not be official denominations, but there are a lot of different variations within Christianity. Even within evangelicalism, there's a huge range of thought. There are a lot of progressive evangelicals. We can't forget that. Um, there are a lot of progressive white evangelicals. Remember, four out of five white evangelicals voted for Trump, one in five did not. And then there are a lot of other different varieties of religion uh, occupying a wide range of political and theological positions. So, um, yeah, our country is diverse. Christianity itself is diverse. And by the way, I think most Christians see religion as having something to do with loving one another and uh, mm -hmm. helping the poor in the least of these. Right. And this is something you and I talked about offline about, you know, um, black Christianity, right. Um, you know, especially in the South and, you know, that group of voters typically votes consistently progressive or democratic, right. Which, mm -hmm. you know, that's another faction that you can't forget about. Of course. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, it, it sort of pains me a bit when 
people listen, people use the language that they want to, and that's that's great. You know, I would never criticize that, but I think calling the movement evangelical is too easy. It and and it ignores the fact that many black evangelicals and some white evangelicals resist a lot of the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents. You know, look, Trump won because he appeals to the racism of many of his supporters. And, you know, many of them supported a president and a movement that is in power only because he appeals to the racism of so many people. And leaders of the movement, I think, paper over the ways in which uh, hyper-conservative religion and racism can reinforce one another. But it's important to point out that, you know, although the Christian nationalist movement is largely a white movement, leaders of the movement sort of can see the demographic future as clearly as you or I can. They understand that the electoral future of the movement is really not ethnically homogenous. So in recent years, they've made a significant outreach to Latino pastors, to Black pastors, um, to Latino and Black voters. I mean, there's a cruel irony that these folks are being enlisted to fight culture wars that drive support for a political party that engages in voter suppression, race-based gerrymandering, the cruel and inhumane treatment of migrants, um, and things like that. But, um, you know, I've been to events specifically, some of the outreach events specifically for Black and Latino pastors in order to try to persuade some number of their congregants to vote these uh, quote-unquote biblical values, which will drive support for the hyper-conservative politicians the movement favors. I'm curious as to what their message is, you know, how do they persuade them? Really interesting. Yeah, I mean, in chapter four, I described this event in detail. Like I was at this event in Chula Vista with dozens of Latino pastors. The event was held in Spanish. In Spanish language, it was uh, held by an organization called Church United, which is definitely like, you know, it's a hyper right wing organization. The leader is always sort of praising Trump on Twitter and stuff like that and attacking the fake news and all this nonsense. But he has a very explicit outreach to sort of multiracial group of pastors. So this was this event in a Chula Vista megachurch. And one of the speakers was up there telling the pastors how to think about elections. And he said, when you're talking to your congregations about economic issues, what's more important, talking about the minimum wage or talking about life? So, I mean, think about it. He's saying, what's more important, a few extra dollars or life itself? Well, when you phrase it in those terms, people are going to think, hmm, maybe life is more important, you know, meaning abortion. There was life meaning that's code word for abortion. So he's trying to get people to not think about, you know, fair wages and rights for the workforce and things like that. He's trying to get them to think about abortion. And then, of course, there's another speaker who gets up there and talks about, you know, the homosexual agenda. That's, you know, always something that they're talking about. And then they had a speaker distribute all of these materials that are supposedly for sex education curricula that's going to be taught in their kids' school, supposedly a representation of something called California's Healthy Youth Act. Now, I looked at this piece of paper, and it was really shocking to me. I saw this mashup of graphics and text. And look, I've got two kids. They're both school age. And I was looking at these materials, these graphics, and some of the materials were bizarre. Some of these materials were just seemed wrong, like factually wrong. Um, Most of them seemed wildly inappropriate for the age groups that they suggested they were reaching. You know, what might be right for a high schooler is definitely not right for a kindergartner. 
So then later I thought, well, I better do some fact checking here. So I thought, okay, what's the most liberal school district in the state? Probably San Francisco. So I called uh, head of uh, San Francisco Unified School District to show them some of these graphics and say, are, are you teaching these in these textbooks? And apparently none of the graphics and text were being taught in the manner in which they were suggested in this piece of paper. Some of them, it was suggested were being taught at the kindergarten level, were actually being taught at the high school level, which is like fine. And some of the graphics and text were not taught anywhere in this school district at all. But, you know, by handing out these very misleading materials that they found in other places and sort of mashing together to suggest certain things about them, it's actually a kind of form of misdirection. And it gets people to vote, uh, you know, gets people all upset, makes them feel like, oh, my gosh, our families are under threat. And it's a way of turning them out to vote a certain way. And I just remember, you know, growing up, if you wanted to grow your coalition, you, you went door to door and you knocked and you convinced people that what they believed wasn't wasn't the right way and this is the right way. But now, you know, they're, they're just going straight to the political power. They are. I mean, they definitely get the, the rank and file through the appeal to religion. And, you know, look, at every event I go to, let's you know, be fair, it's not that it has nothing to do with religion. It's making use of religion for political purposes. So it, it's not that there's no involvement of religion whatsoever. And often there's very intense theological just justifications for their positions. But it has always been so. I mean, let's look at the issue, as I do in my book, about um, the distinction between the theologians supporting slavery and the theologians supporting emancipation and abolition. So in the book, I discuss the contributions of perhaps a dozen abolitionist theologians, including Aidan Ballou, Charles Grinison Fandy, uh, Wilberforce, but, you know, at the time of the Civil War, most of the major denominations of the South either promoted slavery or had at least made their peace with it. And these pro-slavery theologians consciously refrained from making judgment that was going to upset the established order. And so both groups claimed that they had, you know, divine authority on their side. You know, I mean, when abolitionists um, argued for abolition, they did so from pulpits and in religious terminology as did the pro-slavery theologians who said that slavery was, you know, in the South Carolina, Episcopalians of South Carolina said slavery was, quote, marked by every evidence of divine approval um, and, you know, nowhere sin in the sight of God and things like that. But, you know, Frederick Douglass himself said at the time that these religious abolitionists tended to be a really disempowered group within their own denominations. They tended to be poor. He said they were from humble pulpits. That's how he described it. Whereas he said that the rich theologians, sort of ministers of high standing, were on the side of slavery. And he was correct about that. So what you see is it's almost like these different groups of theologians, they had different views and they were using religion to kind of justify their views. Like one group believed in emancipation. They believed in equality. You know, they believed that the enslavement of other human beings was like the worst sin imaginable, which it is. And, and the other group was sort of using their religion to justify those same practices. So take a step back, you can see that people will use religion to justify a different variety of positions and often mutually contradictory. So sometimes it, it, it makes a question whether the politics are actually coming from, from a different place altogether. You know, climate change, for instance, you, if you want it, you could make the argument in the other direction and say that it's the godly thing to save the planet. And many people do. There's a whole like um, uh, evangelical climate movement. They, they, they call it something like creation care, 
where they say, you know, God made us stewards of this earth and we really have a, you know, moral and ethical and religious responsibility to take good care of it. I believe that Catherine Hayhoe is one of the leading um, climate scientists and she's a, you know, very strong evangelical voice for climate responsibility, responsible climate policy. So um, indeed, people can make these arguments and often make use of their religion or their theology to, to make them. At some point, there was a shift, right? There was a shift where both parties realized that they could benefit from an alliance with one another, or, you know, one party realized it and they kind of latched onto the other. But I think it happened, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm thinking it happened with Ronald Reagan's um, campaign in the 80s. And there was some religious event that he was invited to, and Jimmy Carter was also invited, and Ronald Reagan accepted the invitation. And there was lots of pandering. He said things like, you know, he, he questioned, you know, evolution. You know, he said something like, if I were stranded on a desert island or stranded on an island, I'd take the Bible. Is that where the primary pivot happened? That was a, a watershed moment for the movement, indeed. Ronald Reagan spoke at the Reunion Arena in Texas, I believe it was 1980, 1981, he gave a talk uh, when he uh, to a number of pastors, large number of pastors in the audience. And he said something to the effect of like, I, I know you can't endorse me, but I endorse you and what you are doing. And the crowd went wild. And it was a culmination of a new movement in American politics that had been building for some time which was a new movement called the, the New Right. You know, some of the leaders of the movement included Paul Weyrich, uh, Howard Phillips, who ended up doing religious outreach for Reagan. They were really unhappy with the way that the direction the Republican Party was going at the time. They felt like it was too soft on communism, not sufficiently conservative in terms of its religion. There's been a rising movement of mainline uh, religion, and um, they were very upset about the women's movement. They were very upset about um, the fact that the IRS was starting to look askance at these um, segregated schools in the South that a lot of religious leaders like Jerry Falwell and Bob Jones Jr. were involved with. And that was really the issue, actually, that kind of motivated the movement, that animated it. They were really upset when the IRS started to look at Bob Jones University and say, well, why are we giving you tax privileges? You're um, engaging in segregation. I mean, remember, Bob Jones was a really ardent segregationist. And he called segregation God's established order. He actually said that. And, and, and so, you know, this movement, you know, as far as these religious leaders were concerned, they had a right not just to segregate people, but also to receive federal money for the purpose. So they got together around the fear that the Supreme Court was going to end their tax exemptions. But they knew that stop the tax on segregation wasn't really going to be an effective rallying cry to inspire a broad-based hyper-conservative counter-revolution. So they basically got together and went down a laundry list of issues they thought might unite their movement. So we're talking 1979 or so. This is around six years after Roe v. Wade and just before that event at the Reunion Arena. So number one was what they viewed as the threat to the tax privileges of racist academies. The women's movement was another, and there were several on the list. Then they came to abortion, and they finally said, wow, that's an issue that could really work. So, you know, that this part of the history has really been effectively erased by the leadership of the Christian nationalist movement today. I mean, many conservative-leaning American voters have been persuaded over time that abortion is the issue, 
that really matters when it comes to their vote. But it wasn't back then. I mean, when Roe versus Wade was passed, the Southern Baptist Convention supported it. Ronald Reagan signed the most liberal piece of abortion law in history in, in I believe it was like 1967. You know, Barry Goldwater was a great conservative hero, supported abortion law liberalization too, at least early in his career. Even Billy Graham said something to the effect of, you know, I believe in Planned Parenthood, which is like his signaling that he was a supportive of family planning. But you know, there were activists like Phyllis Schlafly, who saw the potential for this issue to unite a new movement. And so over time, they purged pro-choice voice from the Republican Party. Can you imagine that there used to be pro-life Republican groups? You really can't have that anymore. So the pro-life religion that we're seeing today, you know, it's almost like a you know, the party of life kind of stuff. This is really a modern creation. It was created for political purposes. Wow. Wow. So was Reagan even religious or? <laughs> I think Reagan was quite, um, he was a sort of a man of faith, but I don't believe, you know, that he was in any way, shape or form a fundamentalist. He was more of like a kind of um, mainline religious guy. But I do think he saw the political value of appealing to this cohort because he recognized how powerful they were. And that is why that event at the reunion arena was such a watershed moment for the movement. It was the first time a leader of this stature had actually given recognition to this movement and said, I endorse you and what you're doing. So, you know, if I recall correctly, during the 2016 election, right, um, that whole election cycle, Trump actually said some really similar things that, that Reagan said. He had some similarly pandering moments, right? Um, I remember there was one interview where he was asked what his favorite Bible verse was, and he kind of, you know, flubbed that. He didn't know what he tried, you know, and he, yeah. you know, he does all of these things. And, you know, there's another element. I'm kind of going off the rails here, but there's another element that he does. So he, he does this performative religious thing. And, you know, there's no doubt that he's not really a religious person. At least I don't have any doubt that he's not a religious person. But then he also kind of brings in, you know, um, patriotism, too. You know, he'll say something like, God bless the flag, and he'll hug it on stage. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, he obviously has learned some of these same lessons. He has learned how the value of this cohort. So in advance of the 2016 election, you know, I went to all of these right-wing gatherings, like Road to Majority conferences, Values Voters conferences, different strategy meetings of the leadership. And he was really, you know, was really trying to get this folks on his side because he knew that they have invested over decades, many decades in all of the tools of modern campaign infrastructure. They've got the data, they've got the media, they've got the messaging, they've got the legal advocacy. So he saw how important they become to elections and he wanted to get their support. He would do, have done anything for it because he knew he couldn't win without it. So he promised judges, he promised, quote, pro-life judges, pro-life meaning sort of these are going to be pro-life judges, but, you know, they're going to have also support right-wing economic policy and these other policy positions that you want. He um, appointed, you know, chose Mike Pence to be his veep. And, you know, he spoke to these groups in very appealing terms. And they turned out their machine for him. And that's, you know, that's how he won the election. I mean, I think for people on the outside of the movement, the alliance between Trump and the so-called values voters remains really baffling. I think some conclude that the relationship is just transactional, like a real estate deal between two sides that might have otherwise avoided each other at the mall. 
So they think, well, he's just appointing right-wing justices. That's a big part of it, to be sure. I mean, to date, Trump has appointed 192 federal judges. That last I checked, actually, I think it's more now. So that was last I checked about a month ago. It was like over 22% of the federal judiciary he's appointed in three years. And then, you know, look at the Supreme Court. So, you know, the movement is advancing a lot of its aims through the courts and Trump is giving them everything that they ask for on that side. But, you know, um, there's something else there. I think that religious nationalism almost always favors a fierce leader. It doesn't want someone who follows the rules. It wants someone who breaks the rules and twists arms as long as those arms belong to their dreaded enemy. So, you know, I think there's something in his style that they actually appreciate. It's an authoritarian style. They're, they're not trying to affirm democracy. He's sort of breaking democratic norms, and they like that because Christian nationalism is an anti-democratic movement. Now, they've made their affinity for him really explicit by referring to him almost like a king. They compare him to biblical kings like King David and King Cyrus. He's sort of cast as this imperfect vessel whom God chose to enact his will and quote, so-called, quote-unquote, restore America to its Judeo-Christian roots. The thing about monarchs is they don't have to care about what the majority of the population wants. They don't have to serve the entire country. They can do what they want. They're all about power. And so, in a way, Trump is a perfect leader for this movement. It is all about power. Right, right. And who best to to enact a, you know, punitive policies against you know, the rulers of darkness. Absolutely. I would imagine that that's part of it. Democrats have been right. associated with, with evil, essentially. Right. And you know, he's fine. So whatever he does is fine. You know, he completely lacks a moral, moral base or you know, moral direction. That's, that's perfectly fine with them. I was actually reading a Pew Research study that was done, I think, late last year that said that they pulled some Americans, or I don't know if they were specifically Trump voters, but they pulled some Americans and asked, you know, what was more important to them, their own religious beliefs or the leader's religious beliefs, right? As long as they could have a leader that can enact, you know, this kind of overarching policy that supports their values, they were fine with whatever the person did. Right. I know. I know. It's kind of amazing. It's a form of identity politics. I mean, it ties the idea of America to specific cultural and religious identities. So a lot of folks support Trump because he is appealing to their identity politics. It's so funny. Like it's the left that's always getting hammered for, you know, too much of a focus on identity politics. I think the right plays identity politics even harder. There's always a a we that's under threat and a they that they hate. You know, I get a mail every day from almost every day from like one of the right wing policy groups. You know, I subscribe to a bunch of different newsletters. And I remember there was a, a letter that said something like, you know, the attacks on Trump are not about Trump. They are an attack on you, you know. And it's basically so there are people who will support him. People in this movement, the rank and file, are encouraged to identify with Trump on a personal level. Not to say, well, he's our leader and he's doing good things for us, but he is us. And an attack on him is an attack on all of us. Right, which makes sense because if they view him as merely a vessel, right, for the, their vision of America, vessels can be replaced. <laughs> right, exactly. I know, you know, but it is important to note that the movement long preceded Trump and it will long outlast him. Because if you think about it, you know, why not vote for Pence? You know, why did he lose the Republican primary? I mean, Pence, you know, shares their beliefs, but he doesn't have that kind of authoritarian, that kind of punitive nature that they were probably looking for. So let's talk about the fact that they obviously 
they they are the minority. It doesn't feel like it, but they are the minority in the country, right? right, um, right. The Christ- Christianity generally is on the decline, a steep decline. You know, even though it's pretty, it's multifaceted. There's different variations of Christianity, but overall, it's on the decline. How are they able to have such an outsized influence in comparison to the percentage of the population that they that they represent? Is it is it money? Is it wealth? A lot of it is not is uh, cohesion and organization. Money and wealth plays into that because the movement has invested a huge amount of money into their get out the vote machine. But look, in a country where forty to fifty people uh, percent of people don't turn out to vote whether because they don't want to bother to it, they've been persuaded that both sides are terrible, or because their votes have been kind of essentially stolen from them through, you know, voter suppression, race-based gerrymandering, whatever. You don't need a majority to win elections. All you need is a really organized and coherent minority to turn out to vote. So they are a minority of the population, this particular group. The true believers sort of vote in vastly disproportionate numbers. There's a wonderful evangelical pollster named George Barna, who is actually deeply involved in some leading policy groups of the movement. And when I say wonderful, because it's because his books are really enlightening, he noted that the most sort of fervent supporters of this movement, a group that he calls Sage Cons, which stands for Spiritually Active Governance Engaged Conservatives, vote uh, 91% voted in 2016. So they're just 10% of the population. Get this, just 10%, one in 10. 91% voted in 2016, and 93% of those cast their vote for Trump. And it basically shows that you really don't need a majority of the population to win elections. All you need is a really coherent minority. If other folks who rejected these politics of conquest and division would turn out to vote in similar numbers, they would be defeated. The country would look very, very different. It would look very different. Wow. I I don't know if I'm, you know, depressed by that or encouraged by that. It's encouraging. I mean, this is a cause for optimism. Um, The religious right has invested in all the tools of modern political campaigns, like data, media, messaging, uh, people who want to uh, change our politics are free to do that too. If we would just hold not just ourselves accountable to vote, but also hold our friends and family accountable to vote, that would really help. If we can do as they do and overlook, look, maybe the front runner isn't, isn't your perfect guy or gal. Maybe they said something stupid back in 1982 Maybe um, they, you don't like this particular point of such and such policy. You know what? Look beyond those issues. Look at the justices they're going to appoint. Look at the people they're going to appoint to run their cabinets. Do they support the principles of equality and diversity? Or do, or do they demand conformity and control? And do they target specific groups for hate? So I think the big picture is really important to keep in mind. And I have a lot of faith, I think, a lot of the 2016 really shook up a lot of folks. And yeah. I think, you know, we've come through some terrible um, crises in, in our past in America. And I think we can come through again if enough people recognize what's happening, engage in the political process in meaningful ways, we can turn back the tide. Well, that, that, okay, so I feel better now. <laughs> so I do want to ask you about something that you talk about in the book, the Blitz, right? Something called Project Blitz, which I had never heard of before. It has something to do with, you know, the legislature and them kind of, you know, shifting the balance of the legislature, the direction of the legislature. Rather, rather. Right. Can you talk about that? Sure. The central strategy of Project Blitz is to overwhelm state legislatures 
with so many religiously oriented bills that some of those bills can be expected to get through, and then the center of the debate gets shifted to the right. So the key item on the agenda is to secure the right of certain faith groups to discriminate against certain other groups. At the end of the day, it's really about the sort of soft establishment of a certain kind of religion in America, signaling to people through the law that there's a certain group that's privileged and other groups that are not deserving of privilege. So Project Blitz is an, an initiative that you know, a number of people are involved with, including the Congressional uh, Prayer Caucus, and they had a, literally a plan, like a, a, a playbook, you know, over 100-page playbook. And they divided the different levels of legislation into three points, depending three, three categories, depending on level of difficulty in getting them passed. So the first level was all around putting in God we trust signs in public schools and in on public buildings and courthouses, even on police cars. And so a lot of people could say, what's the harm in putting it in God we trust sign in a public school? Well, the idea is to sort of conflate in people's minds, and especially the minds of school children, the idea of religiosity and national identity. And as they show that they understand that that's just phase one, but it leads the way into phase two, which is celebrating a single type of religion in public schools and in public life. You know, it's, it's sort of the Project Blitz is more of a strategic plan of how all of these levels work together. The third category, of course, is offering people with the supposedly correct beliefs the right to discriminate against other people and people who are not members of the Christian faith. But this project shows a sort of coherence, sophistication of tactics and discipline. The movement doesn't just understand how these bills out are going to play out in state legislatures. They also really know how the fallout of putting in these bills and introducing these bills is going to be covered in the media, and then how that coverage can be made to further their agenda. So when legislators sort of objected to some of the in God we trust public uh, bills and uh, you know signs in public schools. Like I'm thinking of a case where one of them said, well, how would we feel if they put, you know, an all we trust, you know, and then the right wing media went wild and said, oh, my gosh, they want to put all in public school. Like, do you know what I'm saying? They, they sort of completely mischaracterized it. And, you know, one one of the sort of members of the Congressional Prayer Caucus got up on Fox TV and said, gosh, I didn't think this would be controversial at all. But he knew it was going to be controversial because they say in the Project Blitz playbook that it's going to be controversial. And they're going to say these are going to be things that liberals go crazy trying to oppose. And it's like playing whack-a-mole. It's going to be like whack-a-mole with the other side. And it's going to move the ball forward. I mean, David Barton, one of the Christian nationalist leaders who's actually on the um, steering committee of Project Blitz, literally said this in an audio conference call that um, was at one point um, available on their website. So I and a number of other reporters listened to those audio conference calls. I wrote a piece about this for the New York Times. Other people have covered it for other publications. But what it really shows, I have to say, at the end of the day, Project Blitz shows this very sophisticated, coherent strategy. They're not just thinking about messaging for the rank and file. They're thinking about the blowback and how they can use messaging from that blowback in their media in order to win the public to their side. I just find that absolutely fascinating. I mean, because first of all, I'll probably link to that that piece you, you did for the New York Times on Project Blitz um, oh, in the show you. notes, because I think it's really important for people to, to know this. And it's probably one of the most interesting chapters for me in your book, because just this year alone, I think I've done maybe a half dozen or more, maybe a dozen episodes just on Democrats' focus 
on state legislatures because I think 10 years ago, you know, Republicans blindsided everyone with Project Red Map, right. which, and they were focusing on the state legislature. And I don't know how many people are aware of Project, like I had never heard of Project Blitz. And I, like I said, I've done like at least six episodes on state legislatures. So anyway. it's really, it, you know, it's, it's really, it's a hard thing. A lot of people still haven't heard about it. You know, it's basically turning the idea of religious liberty on its head. They want to put in these building blocks in place that are going to lower the bar between separation of church and state until they can eliminate it completely. And I think that, you know, those of us who oppose those, their politics need to study their tactics in order to understand them. And there are times when they can actually be emulated. Yes, which brings me to my final question on emulation. <laughs> how does this end? I mean, maybe you've answered this to some extent earlier in the interview, but how does it end? And like, it just seems like it's a, it's a you know, train, a moving train. It's going full steam ahead. And I don't know how to stop it, even though, again, they don't have the majority. You know, how, how do we move this out of politics? Elections matter. Poli- you know, judges matter. And I think that this is a fact that the right has grasped. Democrats are always arguing amongst themselves about, you know, is this person perfect? Maybe they did something that I didn't like, or maybe they didn't, whatever. The right unifies when necessary. They create a positive voting culture. They make you feel like no matter how old you are, no matter, maybe you're disabled, maybe you're busy, you know, with kids and you can't get to the polls, you know, they'll find a way to get you to the polls. And not only that, They'll find a way to engage you, if you want, in politics in meaningful ways. They'll find ways to engage you, whether it's at church, whether it's in your community. They really kind of meet people where they are to try to engage them in politics in a meaningful way. I think sometimes there are folks on the left who think that if they go to a demonstration, that's all they need to do. That's not going to swing elections. You know, voting will swing elections. Signing up people to vote at marches might help swing elections. Does that make sense? So really appreciating the value of the vote. And also, you know, for people who are in a position to do so, invest in data, invest in media, invest in messaging. Be as sophisticated as they are. Like I've gone to a lot of these uh, anti, like evangelicals for life, these pro-life conferences, this sort of, they do all these workshops and they have messaging workshops that target very specific age groups at a micro level. They'll say, well, for grades 10 to 12, this is a message that works. For the university set, this is the groups that works. For you know grandparents, this is a message that works in order to try to tailor messaging to meet people where they are and find um, language and messaging that's really emotionally resonant. And I think that that's really important to do, really meet people where they are and get them engaged in the political process in meaningful ways. Well, on that note, um, Catherine Stewart, thank you so much for, for you know talking to me today. This is really important and people should read your book. Thank you so much. Oh, well, it's really a pleasure to chat with you and, and thanks so much for reading and, and for everything you do. I'm really honored to be among your fantastic roster of guests. 